you brought a Bible with you, would you open to the book of 1 Peter? We've been in a study of this book for several weeks, and we've got more to go as we'll finish this one up and move right into his second letter. 1 Peter chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 18. And those of you that have been following along with us through all of this study might think to yourself, hold it, that doesn't make sense. That's not where we left off last week. Why are we skipping ahead? Well, for a very good reason. I wanted to pull this message out for you as Don Sanders and I will be going back and then forward in this book. So sandwiched between the things that he and I'll be preaching next week as we do that message together is this wonderful teaching that really deserves a close look. So let's take a look. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Listen to what Peter writes. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Oh man, there is some good stuff in this. There really is. Almost more than we can cover in one message, but I'm going to do my best. Like I said, I've been very excited about this. If you saw on Friday during the afternoon or evening when I sent out my email, the title of the message, or maybe you saw it this morning when you got to church and it was there in your bulletin, you probably had some indication that I was excited about the message. In fact, this is the title that I've given to it, Mind-Blowing and Soul-Saving. However, the more I studied for it and the, the more I was bringing certain things together, it seemed to me that and maybe there was a better title that I should have gone with. That's, that's this one. It's not what you know, it's who. Mind-blowing and soul-saving. This morning, I'm going to take all three portions of that title and break this passage down, utilizing each aspect of this. You're going to have to stay with me. I'd like to tell you that it was going to be easy listening this morning. It's not. You're going to have to stay with me as we go through this. So dial in, get rid of all the distractions that you might have brought with you, and hang with me. I don't want you to miss anything from this. So let's start with the first part. It's not what you know, it's who. Look again at how Peter starts this section. For Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now, it's very obvious right out of the gates that Peter is talking about Jesus. But pay close attention to what he says. The righteous for the unrighteous. What he means is that Jesus was righteous in every facet of the term. He was sinless. He was perfect, he was holy, he was righteous, and he took on unrighteousness. He took on sin so that he could bring us to God. Now let's break that down real quick. 
Jesus was righteous, perfect, sinless, all those things that we just talked about. But he died for the unrighteous. Now, you may not be aware of this, and so I'm about to share some news with you that could be shocking. That means you, and that means me. Jesus was sinless, perfect, righteous, holy. We are unrighteous because of sin. The Bible makes that very, very plain in passages of Scripture like this in Romans chapter 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's me, that's you, that's everybody around us. Here, just, just try this. Turn and look at the people that are sitting to the right or the left of you. If you're really bold, look at the people sitting behind you. Look at the back of the head in front of you. That's all of us. That is all of us. Look at the preacher on the stage. That is all of us. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is just a truth, a biblical truth that we have to hold on to. But take a look at some deeper teaching of who Jesus is and what he did for us. This is found in the book of 2 Corinthians. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus did all of this to change our standing before the Lord. Rather than seeing us as unrighteous, unholy, as sin-laden people, based on what Jesus did, God sees us as righteous. He took on all of our sin. He died on the cross, paid the penalty for our sin, that we might stand before the Lord. In fact, I love the way Peter helps us understand exactly what that means. Did you catch it? He uses a really cool term in this. Take a look again. We'll put it up on the screen. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. It is not what you know. It is who you know that changes everything, changes everything about our standing with God, including our relationship with God. Peter says that Jesus did all of that to bring us to God. Prior to Jesus' death on the resurrection, there was a massive gap between all of mankind and God. Huge gap. But when Jesus died on the cross, that changed. It changed dramatically. Keep your finger there in 1 Peter, but join me in Matthew 27. I'll show you exactly what it looks like. Matthew 27, verse 51. There's still a few pages turning. I'll give you just a second. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. When Jesus died on the cross, there was a curtain that hung between the Holy of Holies in the temple. And that hung not only between the Holy of Holies, but between there and all of mankind except for the high priest. When Jesus died on the cross, that curtain was torn in two. It was torn in two, opening the way for us to have a relationship with God a personal relationship with God. Prior to this, 
with the exception of Adam and Eve and a very few select other people. Nobody had experienced this. But now the the curtain is torn and Jesus brings us to God in essence to say, hey, they're with me. God, my Father, these are my friends. These are, are my brothers and sisters. And God says, welcome. We have standing before Him just like His Son does because of Jesus. He brought us to God. When He died on the cross, took on all of our sin, took on all of our unrighteousness, this righteous, perfect, sinless, holy person that was both man and God. When He did all of that, He did it for a specific reason, to bring us to God. And friends, that is earth-shattering news. Now, I'm not exaggerating that. That's not preacher exaggeration when I say that. That is earth-shattering news. Take a look again in Scripture. Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. That was earth-shattering news. We hear people talk about earth-shattering news all the time, or we get alerts on our phone, and it's supposed to be super important. Well, that was an early-day alert. Nobody was walking around with their phones waiting for some news source to pop up and tell us what happened. God shook the earth to say that something new and fresh was happening. Jesus brought us to God. Wow. Wow. Don't ever forget this. It is not what you know. It is who you know that makes that possible. And because of Jesus, we can have a relationship. I love that. We can have a relationship with the creator of the universe. Isn't that great news? That's a a place to say amen a little bolder. Amen. Amen. Almost as if you mean it. Amen. There you go. Earth-shattering news. But while all that was happening, while... The earth was shaking and the rocks were being split wide open with this new revelation. There were some other things happening. Mind-blowing things. Let's go back to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3. I'll just start in verse 18 again. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Mind-blowing things were happening. But if we really want to understand them, we are going to have to open up that understanding through the use of two questions, at least two questions, and there could probably be a lot more. But here's the two that go through my mind that allow us some understanding on what's taking place here. Here they are. Who are these spirits, and what did he proclaim to them? When we read something as pointed as what we just read in Scripture, these types of thoughts have to run through our mind. So let's see if we can't answer both of these questions. We will follow the logical step and take the first one first. Who are these spirits? There are a number of people that would like to tell us 
that those were simply the souls of unrighteous people that were kept in hell. And Jesus went there and proclaimed to them the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ unto salvation. Now, there are some massive, massive, I do not mean small, there are massive problems with that belief. Beginning with this, when we see in Scripture the use of the word spirits, it is most often, and I might even hedge a bit and say always about angels or demons. It is not, when it has a small s like it does here in 1 Peter, it's not talking about people. It's not talking about the Holy Spirit. It is talking about angels or demons. Because you see, when Scripture speaks of people in this particular realm of death, it is always using the word souls, not spirits. So that is a huge problem in and of itself. The word itself becomes a stumbling block to that belief that Jesus went to hell. Now, there are other problems like this. At no point anywhere else in Scripture would we ever find that after Jesus died, he went to hell. That doesn't exist. So the doctrine itself has huge holes in it. But the Bible would drive a nail into that doctrine with passages like this in Hebrews chapter 9. This is verse 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So there's the teaching on it. We have this life to make a decision for Jesus. After this life, it is too late. It is too late. So that takes us back to those two questions. Terry, let's take a look again. Then who are these spirits? If these are not unrighteous people that were waiting in hell, which by the way does not yet exist, there's another problem with that doctrine, then who are these spirits? Well, we've already hinted just a bit at it, that utilizing the small s in regard to the word spirit, it's not a capital S, it is a small s, utilizing that word helps us understand that we're talking about angels and demons, but Peter would actually further connect this to the days of Noah. And because he connects it to the days of Noah, we need to go back and take a look at what he's talking about. So let's do that. Genesis chapter 6. Keep your finger there, First Peter. I told you you needed your track shoes because we're going to make our way all through Scripture this morning. Genesis 6, verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old the men of renown. Here's where you need a snorkel. So take your track shoes off, put your snorkel on, and let's jump in. This is hard stuff. We are now hearing the Bible teach that the sons of God, which is a term used 
for angels as well. If this was talking about men, it would say the sons of men, says the sons of God. So we have angels that were looking at women, seeing that they were attractive, and they were breeding with them. They were having children with them. You might say, hold it, Phil, that makes absolutely no sense whatsoever because angels cannot reproduce. You're not wrong. What we have here is the very first account in all of Scripture of demonic possession. So, fallen angels, those that had rebelled against God and had been cast out of heaven, were possessing the bodies of men, and they were producing a superhuman race. Now, if you want to argue about that, well, I'm, I'm more than willing to have a discussion, but the argument's with Scripture, because that's what the Bible says. So the Bible lays that out for us. A lot of times when we think about the flood and why God would wipe out everything that he had created through the waters of the flood, we always think that it's because of the wickedness of men. But in reality, it is deeper than that. It is because of, of what was happening here between these fallen angels and women and this race that was being produced that God said, that's it. That is it. No more. I will not allow that because that so pollutes creation that I will not abide it. And that's why judgment came. And it came with great force. The entire earth was covered with water in that judgment. But we'll come back to that. And after that, these fallen angels were imprisoned. They were imprisoned so that this could never happen again. Now, I'm going to show you some other passages of Scripture that help us know that. Like in the little book of Jude, near the end of your Bible. It's only one chapter, but man, the teaching in that one chapter, this tiny little book, is astonishing. Jude, verse 5. By the way, he is the half-brother of Jesus, so he knows some things. He knows some things that other people don't know. He knows some things. Here we go. Verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So there's these spirits that are locked up in prison. In his second letter, Peter would actually talk more about this as well. This is 2 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and then he goes on. So we have different passages of Scripture, Old Testament and New, that help us understand who these spirits in prison were. These were fallen angels. They were locked up for all time. The time will come in the book of Revelation where they'll be loosed. But right now, they're locked up. And they were locked up during the time of the crucifixion and the resurrection. 
when Jesus died on the cross. And remember, he died on the cross to bring us to God. So if we know that it's not this easy doctrine that people like to teach, that Jesus went to hell to preach to those that were kept there, the sinners that were kept there, that they might come to salvation, and we know through our study of Scripture that they were actually fallen angels that were imprisoned, then it begs the second question. Do you remember that second question? What did he proclaim to them? What was the message? There are some translations of the Bible that say that he went to preach. So if you take the word preach, it would sound like he was taking a gospel message that they could respond to. But in the original language, the word is proclaim. It is a declaration. So he went there to declare something. It was not an evangelistic message. So what was the message? The message very simply was, you lose, I win. That's the message. You want to boil it down? You lose, I win. And then Jesus did something super cool, super cool. He put an exclamation point on that message. Now, again, you may need a snorkel, so just hang with me on this. He put a super cool exclamation point on it. We're going to go back to Matthew 27. You might remember verse 51. We read, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. But then in verse 52, the tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. The exclamation point was the fact that Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection, and there were others that were following him, and those were the holy people that had died prior to the resurrection, prior to the crucifixion. And now, all of a sudden, there are graves that are being opened. And this wonderful place where Jesus told the thief on the cross that he was going, remember he said, today you'll be with me in paradise? Paradise just started to empty itself out. And all of these people were leaving. All of those souls were leaving. And their graves were being opened. And the Bible is very explicit when it tells us that their bodies were seen walking around Jerusalem. And people were like, what in the world? Look at that. But more than that, it is my belief. It is my belief that Jesus said to those fallen angels, take a look at this. You want to know how I win? I win because I died for them and they are coming to know God. Luke chapter 16 gives us just a hint of what that might have looked like. Luke 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, 
And Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, I'd, I would love to spend more time with you on this than we have time for today. So just stay with me as we look at this. What we know is that there is a place called Hades. Hades is the abode of the dead. And Luke chapter 16 tells us that there's two sides to it. Abraham's bosom or what we know as paradise. And then there's this other side. It is called Tartarus. Tartarus. Here, we'll just put that up on the screen. Tartarus. And on the Tartarus side are where those that have died outside of Christ and prior to the crucifixion, those who died unrighteously were kept. And between the two, the Bible says in Luke chapter 16, a great chasm has been fixed. The implication is that there was a one-way window from one side to the other. The people on the Tartarus side could see into the people on the paradise side, but not the other way. The people in paradise could not see in the other way. That would not be consistent with the word of God. And so all of these spirits that were held in prison could see what was happening over here in Abraham's bosom in paradise. And so when Jesus goes and preaches this message of victory, proclaims this message of victory, I win because of them, watch what's happening. And one by one, they're leaving paradise. One by one, they are headed out of there, led, I believe, by the thief that died next to Jesus. He was the first one, but that's just an opinion. That's all that is. He just said, hey, come follow me. And they all headed right out of there. They headed right out of there. And all of those spirits were watching as Jesus shared with them that message of victory. I win because of them. Now here's some great news for you. I shared some tough news earlier. Here's some great news. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that's you. That's you. When Jesus says, I win because of them, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are who he's talking about. I win because of them, because now we have relationship, face-to-face, -face, personal, interpersonal relationship. And this is what I have longed for, and this is what they have longed for, maybe without even knowing it. This is what they've longed for. And those spirits saw that message. They saw that message being driven home. Wow. That's mind-blowing. That is mind-blowing, if you will. And in the midst of the mind-blowing aspects of it, there's some seriously cool soul-saving teaching that's going on. Let's go back to 1 Peter. Verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers 
having been subjected to him. I want to remind you that after all of that mind-blowing stuff happened, Jesus met with his disciples. After the resurrection, Jesus met with his disciples. And he gave them some interesting marching orders. They're found in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So now Jesus is telling all of his disciples, I want you to go out and I want you to tell everybody, everybody, listen, everybody, I want you to tell everybody that this victory that has now been accomplished is for everybody. You tell everybody about it and you baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so we get this really intriguing teaching about baptism that causes us then to wonder, what is it? What exactly is baptism? And why is it so significant that Peter would call it out the way that he does? Well, once we get into it, we can start to discover that. But remember, he equates baptism with what happened during the days of Noah. He equates baptism with the flood, as well he should. Because as one author would say, there is great similarity. Take a look at this. There is a sense that in which our Lord's experience on the cross was a baptism of judgment, not unlike the flood. There is a great similarity in it. The entire world was judged during that time. And the waters came from above and below, and the entire earth was covered with water, was covered with the judgment of God, but eight people were saved. Eight total people were saved. They're the ones who got on the ark. And so there is a lot of similarity. There's a lot of typology, if you're a person given to that type of teaching in Scripture, to salvation. If we get on the ark, if we get into Christ, then we will be saved from judgment. That's just good teaching. And a lot of people have taught this passage from 1 Peter chapter 3 just like that. I have taught this passage just like that. I have preached this passage just like that. But let me be honest with you. I still struggled to reconcile all of it in my mind because I thought there was more to it. So this week I decided to reconcile some things once for all. I wanted to get to the bottom of it. As I was looking at the soul-saving aspects of it, my mind was blown even more. The only way that I can describe it is I went down the rabbit hole and I was down there for a while studying some things out and then I climbed back out. And here's what I discovered. One of the reasons, subtle reasons, that Peter would connect all of this soul-saving message of salvation and baptism to Noah is because, are you ready for this? The ark came to rest on Mount Ararat on the exact day of the resurrection. The exact day of the resurrection. Now, some of you are going to say, what? Come out of the rabbit hole and help us understand that. I'm glad you ask. 
so I will. Now, if you don't care about this kind of stuff, be distracted for about three minutes. But if you do, hang with me because we're coming to a, a conclusion really fast. But in order to get there, I want to show this to you. In order to do that, we have to go back to the book of Exodus. Join me there. Exodus chapter 12. There are not very many times in Scripture where dates are given. And so if you see a date, pay attention to a date. Only took me 55 years to pay attention to this one. Here we go. Verse 1, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight." Now, he is talking about the Passover, the killing of the Passover lamb. At Passover, God changed the Jewish calendar. He says, this now will be the first of your year, meaning the month of April. And so he says, Passover is going to be celebrated on the 14th day. That's the day that the Passover lamb will be slaughtered. Jesus was crucified the day before the Passover, He was crucified, some would tell you, just right up to the edge of Passover. And you can get back into the whole crucifixion story and see how there was a race to get him off of the cross because Passover was going to start, which means that he is sacrificed, he is crucified. At the same time, these lambs were being crucified. And by the way, there were a couple of different Sabbaths that were going on during the time of the crucifixion. Not going to get into all of that. I'm just going to tell you this lines up the right way. So God changes the calendar to say that your calendar will now begin in April. But that was during the Exodus. During the days of Noah, the calendar was different. It began in October. That was the start of the Jewish year. So for that, we've got to go to Genesis chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind blow over the earth, and the water subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. Now listen. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. If you start in October and you count seven months, it takes you to what? Say it? April. And what is the day that is given? 17th. So if Passover is on the 14th, what happened three days after the crucifixion? The resurrection. Now how cool is that? How cool is that? And so the ark comes to rest on Mount Ararat on the day of the resurrection. And Peter, Peter says, now I want you to be baptized 
I want you to do this, and I want to equate it to Noah, and all of the people in those days would have understood the calendar. They would have known what he was talking about, but somehow we lost sight of it. But here's the thing about the Word of God. There are 40 different authors that wrote 66 books over the course of 1,500 to 2,000 years that are so interwoven that we cannot understand the Genesis and the Exodus passage without 1 Peter. But when you put 1 Peter up against Genesis and Exodus, you find yourself going, wow, look how God hid a thread all the way through Old Testament to New that directs us to who Jesus is and what he did for us. And what Jesus did for us when he died on the cross was bring us in that we might have a relationship with God. And God was planning it from the very beginning. Jesus was never a backup plan. It was all the way through. And we were the ones that he had in mind. We were the ones that he had in mind. What a cool subtlety of God. And so now Peter's saying, you need to be baptized, and I'm going to tell you why, because look at what happened during the days of the flood. You need to pay attention to this, which leaves us then wondering, what in the world is baptism? What is baptism? And a lot of people do wonder about it. And the simple truth of the matter is, it is a command of the Bible. It is a command of the Bible. And there are different places in Scripture where we actually see how it works. Like Acts chapter 16. Or not Acts 16, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 22. I'm going to start in verse 1. This is Paul giving his own testimony. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. When they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me, said to me, brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. It is this place where we get rid of the old way of life and the new comes to rest on us. Baptism is a place of burial. It is a place of judgment. We go into the waters of baptism and, and there we get rid of all that old stuff. But we come out of it in a mirror image of the resurrection to live a new life. 
And all through the New Testament, as people would ask about baptism, they would find responses just like what Paul had right there. Why do you wait? Get baptized and let's move into Christ. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, after Peter preached an incredible message, people said, what must we do to be saved? They were cut to the heart. And this was Peter's response. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that exact promise was seen over and over and over again in places like this. The Samaritans, Acts chapter 8, verse 12. The Ethiopian eunuch, Acts chapter 8. In Lydia's household, Acts chapter 16. With the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16. And once again, the Apostle Paul, as he talks about it in Acts chapter 16, verse 22. But what you have to really pay attention to is what Peter is teaching. And I'm going long, I know it, hang with me. What you have to really pay attention to is what Peter is teaching about baptism. He uses a form of logic to help us understand what it really is. That logic is summed up like this. Not this, but this. Here's what it looks like. Not this, but this. Peter says back in 1 Peter chapter 3, it is baptism that saves you. It is not the washing of dirt from your body, but it is the pledge of a good conscience towards the Lord. See how that works? Not this, but this. It is the pledge of a good conscience towards the Lord. So in essence, baptism becomes an external, visible sign of what we have experienced in Christ. I have pledged a good conscience before the Lord. I have buried my old way of life in the waters of baptism, and I have risen to a new way of life, and now I am walking with Christ forever. That's the way it works, and that's what baptism is all about. It is this wonderful, beautiful place where we're able to say to God, I'm going to live different. I'm going to be different because of you, because you brought me to meet God, because you made something happen that formerly could not happen and on my own could not happen, but because of you, it has happened. And baptism is a reflection of that, beautiful reflection of that. I love how Bob Russell says this. Often when Jesus healed someone, he asked for a tangible demonstration of their faith. For example, go wash in the pool of Siloam or go show yourself to the priest or stretch forth your hand or take up your bed and walk. So it's not surprising that when we want to be spiritually healed of sin, Christ asks us for a demonstration of faith. Whoever believes and is baptized shall be saved. Mark 16, verse 16. While it's our faith in Christ that saves us, our obedience offers evidence of our faith. Same thing Peter was teaching. Oh, baptism matters. It matters in a huge way. Because it's the pledge of a good conscience before the Lord to say to God, I want to walk with you forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And I don't want to live with judgment hanging over me, around me, under me, or anything else. I want to live free in you. And Jesus said, I made that happen because I took on all the unrighteousness, including yours, and I paid the price for it. I did that for you. Please hear that. I did that for you. So walk with me and I'll introduce you to my Father. I'll bring you in and you'll spend eternity discovering the incredible things that He has for you. Come to the conclusion, though, 
after 30 years of ministry that there's a whole lot of people that, that push baptism away, that stay distant from it because they don't think they're worthy. They don't think they're worthy of what Jesus has done for them. We're not. It's a free gift of grace. Accept it. And if you happen to be one of those people that just thinks you're not worthy, then I'm going to leave you with one passage of Scripture from Romans chapter 6, and then Dave's going to come close our service. You listen close. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. If you want to talk about baptism, our invitation is always open. And right after this service, you can go to the prayer room and have that conversation. If you want to be baptized this morning, the baptistry is on, it's warm, we have clothes, there's nothing that ought to keep you from it. Make that decision because today is not soon enough. So make that decision.